0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to Episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on a Romanian Revolution.
1: Hey hey listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And this is Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of Modern History, together at last, In each edition, we'll discuss Simpsons episode and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Tattoo who we tattoo. Bet on who we bet on. And this week, it's Season 1, Episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. And Tom?
0: And I'm going to be talking about the Romanian Revolution, the events of which occurred around when Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire was first broadcast.
1: Excellent. Now, before we start, and this may be a uh, a record for a podcast. I'm going to open episode one with a correction um, <laughs> from the pilot episode, where we were discussing. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, you uh, you obviously need to. We were discussing the Tracy Ullman shorts and the entire history of the world post World War Two up till the fall of the Berlin Wall. Essentially, uh, I have had had it on good authority from uh, two. I was about to say long time listeners, but there's only <laughs> been one episode thus far. But but two uh, two trusted sources uh, that at least one Simpsons short was shown as part of the Tracy Olwen show when it was shown on BBC Two. So slapped wrist for me on that one, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll up the research factor next time.
0: Very good. There we go. There we go. You stand corrected. So I just want to tell people how they can get in touch with the show. So we have our shiny new website up that's retrospecticus.org. We have an email address, which is podcast at retrospecticus.org, and we are on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. We've had to put the underscore in there because someone already has the Twitter handle retrospecticus, and it's an, it's an account that's been inactive for about three years, which is really annoying. But what are you going to do? Urgh.
1: I'm sure we can all remember an underscore.
0: So there we go. Right, without further ado...
1: Let's get on with it. So, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, the first episode of The Simpsons, technically we'll get to that, uh, was aired on December the 17th, 1989. It is the only episode of The Simpsons to air in the 1980s. The UK number one at the time, this is just to lend a bit of historical context, was Do They Know It's Christmas? (laughs) By Band-Aid 2.
0: Mm-hmm. now uh,
1: if uh, anybody wants to say that's the worst version of Band-Aid you obviously haven't heard Band-Aid 20 recently mm. uh, yeah. however uh, yes all kinds of luminaries is in there Bananarama, Kathy Dennis D-Mob, Jason Donovan and Kylie Minogue Australian soap actors in the charts, you wouldn't believe it these days would you but there <laughs> we go uh, US viewership, it was the 30th highest rated show of the week and viewed in approximately 13.4 million homes and this was big news at the time for the Fox network, as um, they were not that mature as a network and they, uh, they hadn't actually cracked the top 30 that often. The production number! <laughs> now, I'm not going to make a point of this, but I think it's worth noting that it was 7G08. That means it was the 8th episode to be done in the production block 7G. So this is what uh, i've been banging on about it for two consecutive episodes now is what i mean when i say this wasn't meant to be the first episode of the simpsons the first episode of the simpsons was meant to be some enchanted evening which when we get to it uh, in episode 13 of the podcast we will discover is a terrible episode well in my opinion anyway but it was also terribly animated it was the first episode to come back from the korean animators When it came back, they reckoned up to 70% of it, I've seen in some sources, had to be reanimated to be of broadcastable quality. Because of that, uh, Fox decided that if the second episode produced was uh, similarly bad, they were on the verge of pulling the plug on the show. The second episode delivered was Bart the Genius, which we'll get to next time. That required only minor tweaks, so they said, well, let's go ahead with it, but we'll push the debut back to Christmas and we'll open with the Christmas special, which I think is a very actually a very canny way to launch the show myself. Mm. You're maximising your audience, and you're maximising a family audience as well, which is what I think they are aiming for at the time, with these uh, sort of more Bart-centric uh, early entries in the canon. So there we go. So that's what I've been banging on about in terms of uh, it not being meant to be the first episode. But the first episode, it was. And worth noting, there's a bit quite early in the episode where Marge is writing one of those Bloody Christmas letters that you sometimes get from uh, distant relatives showing off about how everyone's done. Um, uh, she introduces the family there, the fact that the cat Snowball had been run over and replaced by Snowball 2, and mentions Maggie is walking by herself, Lisa got straight A's, and Bart, well, we love Bart. <laughs> and this is really the first time that Lisa and Bart have had kind of separate um, characters, Throughout the shorts, they were they were both sort of uh, hellions. And Lisa is now getting her more worldly, sometimes know-it-all-ish kind of uh, character. The Simpsons are going to have a Merry Christmas. Here's a synopsis of the episode. Bart asks Santa for a tattoo. Marge is unhappy about this, and Homer offhandedly says he needs to pay for it himself. So when the family goes Christmas shopping, Bart sneaks off to a tattoo parlour to get a tattoo reading Mother in the mistaken belief that Marge would appreciate this gesture. Marge does not appreciate this, and she uses the family's Christmas money to pay for the removal of the tattoo, which happens apparently instantaneously. Now, as a relatively tattooed gentleman myself, I can tell you this would not be the case. Removal is long, painful, and takes many sessions. So do what I do, and get the old ones covered up by Sharon at Northern Soul Tattoo. (laughs) That's got to be good for some money off, surely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Nice free plug there.
1: Excellent. 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 So, anyway, all that's fine because Homer's getting his Christmas bonus. Except Homer doesn't get his Christmas bonus because Mr Burns is his boss, Mr Burns likes money, and cancels the Christmas bonus. On the advice of his friend Barney Gumble. and let's face it, that's never a good thing to pay attention to, he takes a job as a Santa at the mall. And Barton covers this on Christmas Eve, but appreciates the effort his father is making to give the family a good Christmas. Homer predictively gets paid less than he expected and runs into Barney Gumble again. Having not learned the first time, he goes to the Greyhound track to attempt to boost his meagre pay by betting it uh, on a long odds dog, and he finds a 99 to 1 shot called Santa's Little Helper, and believing essentially that life is like one of those Christmas special television uh, extravaganzas, uh, decides it can't possibly lose. It loses. Homer loses all of his money, the dog's owner disowns Santa's little helper, A Bart and Homer take him home to the family, who assume he is the Christmas present, and decide that money or no, they're going to have a wonderful Christmas time, which is a very strange thing to be saying in April.
0: <laughs> yes, it is, it is. I should mention that the sun's out, the evenings are getting longer, weather's getting warmer, so in a true British tradition, we're discussing a Christmas special. Of course we are. <laughs> There's lots of things that stand out for me for this episode as a debut episode. And one of the things is that it really strikes me how complete it is, how all of the characters have got their different character traits and lots of the lesser characters are in it. So Mr Burns is in it, and he's got his character trait of being, you know, a greedy boss. Barney Gumball's in it with his trademark belch. Who else is in it? Who makes a debut?
1: Well, other debuts uh, in this episode include Principal Skinner. Oh, yes, or course. Or, uh, or Armin Tabsarian. Spoilers. Oh, uh, <laughs> let's not do that yet. We have uh, Milhouse and a few characters who were in it very, very often in early seasons and in, in, in it less these days. Um, Sherry and Terry, twin girls that uh, are in Bart's class. Mr Largo, the music teacher. Uh, and Lewis. Lewis and Wendell, who were two... Early members of Bart's uh, friendship group, who dropped off the face of the earth. There's also Moe, Patty and Selma, and as you said, Mr Burns. And Heidley Ho to Ned Flanders, who also uh, makes his first appearance in this episode. Should note, however, Barney has blonde hair in this. Oh, okay. And I believe, although I I should have researched this and didn't, that Moe also has the wrong colour hair. Barney was meant to have blonde hair, but they then decided that only the Simpsons should have yellow hair. Okay. So there we go. A design decision then gave Barney a different colour of hair.
0: There's one line in it which really sticks out for me, and it's when Bart goes on Homer's lap, when Homer's dressed as a Santa Claus, not knowing that it's Homer. And Homer says, what's your name, bart No, little partner? And Bart goes, I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you? And that must have really been... Almost quite jarring to an American audience because I'm pretty sure that back then the word hell was kind of considered a you know a mild cuss word. So for an American audience to hear that would have been relatively shocking. And it really, for me, it really puts Bart's character on the map as you know the as as the wild child essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah, and particularly in animation when you think about it. I'm not sure how advanced the idea of animation for adult, well, not that The Simpsons is necessarily for adults, but uh, animation that could hit sort of every demographic in the same episode was, was virtually unheard of. You'd either have sort of Fritz the Cat or, um, I'm going to say the Happy Little Elves. That's not <laughs> what I mean at all. I'm just so in the Simpsons spirit. Uh, yeah, I think sure. the Smurfs is actually what I'm after there, yeah. um, of which they seem to be a, a clear rip. And then you had a uh, uh, Tom and Jerry and the, the other sort of violent cartoons in the middle, but it was all, all cartoon violence. There was no no consequence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think The Simpsons was a um, a real trailblazer in that respect. Very soon after, you get things like Red and Stimpy, the aforementioned duck man. And by mm-hmm. aforementioned, I
0: mean on the last episode, which, again, if you haven't listened to, please go back and listen to. Just going back to Lisa Simpson being my favourite character, there's a line quite near the end where you have... Patty and Selma, in their words, trashing Lisa's father. So Lisa goes on this quite long monologue about how it's going to psychologically damage her in future. And I just remember loving that scene because it really set Lisa apart from Bart. And it really gave her that intellectual characteristic.
1: And it's amazing that that happens over the course of the the episode, essentially. But having said before... Lisa and Bart didn't have that much of a different characterization in the shorts and the fact that they're able to to distinguish from the word go from that line about the straight A's that Lisa is going to be different now and just just run with that I I think that's a bold decision. I think think they did a very good job of, like you say, cementing that in the the time that they had. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. There's also a little bit of fourth wall breaking where Bart says that miracles always happen to families at Christmas. It happened to Tiny Tim, it happened to the Smurfs, and it's going to happen to us. And also the whole arc of the story just really, really sums up Homer because he's a bit of a klutz, a bit of a dunce, you know, life isn't always that great for him, but he tries really, really hard, and he tries to do what's best for his family. And, of course, that being the whole theme of the show really sets him up for all future episodes, I think.
1: Absolutely. Homer is always redeemed by the idea that even if he's not hitting the results that he's after, he is at least trying to be the consummate family man and do the best thing by his his wife and children. Most of the time. There was the whole sort of jerk-ass Homer uh, era that will be coming up if, if we get sort of 12, 13 seasons into this uh, mm-hmm. where perhaps that redemption was few and far between. But certainly for now, yeah, th- this uh, episode does a great job of characterising him as somebody who's not always going to get it right but he's always going to try and get it right. In these early instalments uh, it's important to get the personalities behind this kind of cemented uh, while we've got time because uh, I'll be honest with you, at this stage, it's not exactly joke-a-minute, kind of the memeable stuff. We've got, you know, steamed hams is but a twinkle in the writer's eye somewhere. It's going to take us a while to get there. So we we might as well take this time to sort of fill in the the backstory of of the making of the show. So I touched last time on how there are producers attached to The Simpsons. Matt Groening, we've already mentioned. He was the creator. James L. Brooks, who was a producer on The Tracy Ullman Show. And there's a third credited producer on The Simpsons, uh, a man called Sam Simon. And he's a a writer-producer, and he's more of a a shadowy figure in The the Simpsons Trinity. Um, Think of him as the Holy Ghost, or if you're into Gallifreyan, the other... Or me, in any number of three-piece bands. He's the one that kind of has the least spotlight placed on him. And there's reasons for this, as we'll discover. But he is credited by some as being the real creative force behind The Simpsons. Um, And he was credited with co-writing three of the worst episodes of season one. However, (laughs) it's said he also pitched the ideas for um, some great episodes. Now, the way that The Simpsons uh, writing kind of works, I'm led to believe, is that you'll have people pitch a bunch of ideas... And then people will sort of pick those ideas up and go and develop them. So someone might come up with the episode idea, like, uh, ooh, Marge joins the police. And someone else might go, oh, I want to write an episode about Marge. How about this idea? And go, off and go off and write it. So Sam Simon, for instance, is is said to have come up with the idea for Homer at the Bat, which is the, the softball episode from uh, season three, I hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it would be embarrassing if I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: That'd be a swing and a miss.
1: Absolutely. I'm definitely not looking it up, though. Oh, that's great. Well, you've told people how they can get in touch with us. So if anybody wants to get in touch and correct me, that'd be um, absolutely fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: <laughs> so Sam Simon left The Simpsons in 1993, saying that he just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And certain people have said he's a—he uh, was a very difficult person to work with sometimes. So it might have been a sort of a a marriage of convenience followed by a divorce of convenience, I guess. He, he continued to earn profits from the home media that ran into tens of millions of dollars every year. Uh, and he used that to set up the Sam Simon Foundation, uh, which funds dog rescue and free cat and dog surgeries. So he is an animal philanthropist. Wow. Yeah.
0: So he sort of runs the American equivalent of the PDSA. Seems very much like it, yeah. Wow. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I did not know that. Um, and he also directed the
1: American adaptation of Men Behaving Badly.
0: No. Oh, my word.
1: Amongst other better things, it must be said. But, but that was the only one that was funny, so I thought I'd include that Oh, one. OK. But, uh, OK.
0: <laughs> I didn't even know there was no... How would, Ameri- how would an American adaption of men behaving badly work? Because they don't have, you know, lad culture over there, do they? Exactly. I've, I've yet to see
1: it, but, but observers have told me there's kind of... Well, what are the main things about men behaving badly? They are, they are after women, they are drunk, and they swear a lot. Yeah. I think they're just after women in the American version. Uh, the drinking was certainly at least toned down, and the, the swearing. Well, we've just discussed what a seismic shock hearing the word hell mm. on primetime television may have had. Things haven't got that much better in American tele- Well, not as better necessarily, but mm-hmm. that much more sweary, perhaps. <laughs> and as British people, let's face it, we do enjoy a swear. So. We do, we do. Uh, so the writer of this episode was a lady called Mimi Pond. And she is a cartoonist and illustrator rather than a screenwriter. What happened there was uh, Matt Grady reached out to some of his cartoonist friends to ask if they wanted to write for the series. I guess it was sort of a share the wealth kind of affair. Mimi got in touch. Uh, She wrote this one episode and was not picked up for the regular writing staff. The reason that has been quoted by her is that Sam Simon was going through a divorce and didn't want women on the writing staff. No. Now that's that's. i just taking that from one quote from an interview she did with uh, Jezebel. Okay. So just, just in case anybody uh, from Sam Simon's side uh, <laughs> quibbles on that, that that is down. You know, that that's a Mimi pog quote there.
0: Just j- just in case the Simpsons producer happens to be listening to this.
1: Absolutely, but it wouldn't be Sam Simon who died of colorectal cancer in 2015, aged 59. Oh
0: yes, of course he did. Hmm.
1: Returning to the, uh, the stance on women writers, um, I found a study that the AV Club did, uh, looking at the first 616 episodes. So that's up to nearly the end of season 28, which uh, aired in 2016 through to 2017. They found that only 8% of those episodes had a female screenwriter credited. Mm. So it doesn't appear that things have got much better in, in that respect. On a nicer production note, or, or at least a, a more bizarre one, um, this is one of a few episodes worked on by animator Eric Stefani.
0: Recognise the surname? Stefani? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, as, as in uh, Gwen Stefani?
1: Yes, yes. Oh, okay. He is the brother of Gwen Stefani, and the former member of No Doubt himself. Oh, uh, wow. And he actually co-wrote the band's breakthrough international hit, Don't Speak.
0: Well, there you go. That's quite something. Excellent.
1: So, just going to hit you with a few uh, little facts to close out here. So the first one is that this episode has no chalkboard or couch gags. And the reason for that is it has no opening titles.
0: That's true. Yeah, It just gets
1: straight in there. Straight in there, yeah. The tattoo artist that Bart visits is actually the brother of a popular Simpsons character. Can you guess which one, Tom? Hmm. Is it Dr. Marvin Munro? <laughs> it, it is, but of course I, I am <laughs> honour-bound to say, if you said Marvin Munro, you are wrong, as he was never popular. Of course. Um, but yes, <laughs> it's Marvin Munro, who can also be seen later tattooing Kent Brockman during the Eye Springfield
0: opening titles. Right. Uh, I've, I've got to ask, how on earth do you know that? Because surely he's not named anywhere, is he? Yeah, what? Well, uh. <laughs> certainly on um, the Simpsons wiki
1: that I was looking at, um, he has been named. Now, he's not named in this first episode, and he's obviously not named in the Iron Springfield titles, but he is in the comics. So The Simpsons has a very big, um, shall we say, expanded universe. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, via The Simpsons comics. Right. Um, and that's, that's where this, this character became officially became Mervyn Monroe.
0: Oh, I see, I see. So presumably he's had stories about him, or he's featured at least strongly enough to be given a name. So in the universe of the Simpsons comics, which I'm not massively familiar with, the tattoo artist who gave Bart his tattoo in the first episode features in a storyline somewhere. That's quite something. Indeed, indeed. Um, and While we're talking
1: about characters taking on a, a new life, shall we say, um, it's worth noting that Santa's Little Helper's original owner actually appears again in the season 14 episode Old Yellow Belly," in which Santa's Little Helper replaces Duff Man as the mascot of Duff Beer.
0: Wow, okay.
1: I'm just putting that in there in case we don't make it to season
0: 14. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see.
1: The episode was nominated for two Emmys, uh, Outstanding Animated Program and Outstanding Editing in a Series or Special. Ooh. Now, there's, there's a shiny diamond for you. That, mm. That's the one everyone wants, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> it won neither... Though it was beaten to the former by another episode of The Simpsons, which in itself is highly unusual, as a show is only meant to have one episode in any given category. <laughs> they got away with it by saying The Simpsons roasting on an open fire was a standalone special and not part of the series.
0: Okay. And the wow.
1: final thing, the last thing I will say about this before we can we listen to the Romanian Revolution is that the episode opens with the Springfield Elementary School Christmas pageant, during which Lisa performs as Tawonga, the Santa of the South Seas. She is intended to be wearing a body stocking, but the animators didn't colour it in, and as such she appears to be naked from the waist down.
0: Yes, yes. I I always remember seeing that and thinking, yeah, that looks a bit weird. That can't be right, surely. Absolutely.
1: Well, it's not right, and it was never meant to be so. And if Lisa Simpson, naked from the waist down, floats your boast, please never, ever listen to our podcast again.
0: Uh, yeah, I second that.
1: (laughs) So, that was Simpson's Rose to Go on Open Fire, broadcast originally in the US on December the 17th, 1989. So, Tom, what was happening in the world at that stage?
0: Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Romanian Revolution, which started officially on the 16th of December, 1989, And this is a story of how a megalomaniac who held his country in a vice-like grip for over 20 years was overthrown. But first I need to put in a little bit of the history of Romania. So following the Second World War, Romania, like many countries in Eastern Europe, had a communist government installed by the Soviet Union with Georgi Giorgio Dej, and I apologise if I'm getting that name completely wrong and I'm going I'm to do that with a lot of people's names and place names in the story uh, because they're all either Romanian or Hungarian. So Dej was head of the Romanian Communist Party and he remained in power until his death in 1965 when a guy called Nikolai Ceausescu took over.
1: Ah, right. Now there's a name I remember.
0: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now Nikolai Ceausescu, he put Romania in a unique diplomatic position among the other Warsaw Pact countries. 1968 saw Soviet tanks crush the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. The Czechoslovakian government tried to introduce some liberal reforms and under the pretense of the Brezhnev doctrine the Warsaw Pact countries invaded Czechoslovakia and kicked out the government. So while the other Warsaw Pact countries were joining in Ceaușescu stood up and said that it was wrong. He said, no, this, this is a serious threat to peace in Europe. So this gave him a popularity boost at home, and it made him an absolute superstar internationally. The West saw him as the good communist, the Eastern Bloc leader who stuck two fingers up to Moscow, and he was rewarded lavishly because of this. He went to the States several times, met more than one US president. He got to meet the Queen of England. He got to meet Hirohito of Japan. And he also kept in touch with the communist world. So he went to North Korea and spent time with uh, its leader, Kim Il-sung. He got to witness the cult of personality that developed around Kim Il-sung. So all of the pageantry, all the shows, all of that sort of thing. So Ceausescu attempted to build a cult of personality around himself. Songs were sung about him, plays were written about him. He tried to give this image of a sort of continuation of a Romanian medieval king. So in his propaganda films, there's shots of him driving around in like an open top expensive car, like a, I don't know, like a Cadillac or something, and he's being flanked by six men on horseback dressed as, like, medieval Romanian knights or something like that. It's... <laughs> it, it, it's so bizarre. It's so surreal. Sounds like
1: it has to be seen to be believed. And I, I definitely can't think of uh, anybody else uh, currently in power, perhaps in the Soviet Union, who's trying a similar attack.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so huge elaborate shows were put on to celebrate him, which featured thousands of dancers... And they used to be able to do things like run around in complete sync, and squat down and, and and spell out words like thousands of dancers all spelling out various sentences, all you know, all in praise of Ceausescu. And at the end of these shows, the entire cast and audience would all, as one, turn around and face him and give him a huge round of applause, and he you know he'd, he'd wave to everyone. His whole life was really carefully stage managed so he had a stammer which had to be edited out of any footage of him and you couldn't show him eating you couldn't even show him blinking he was that you know that paranoid about his image and then there's nikolai's wife elena so by 1989 she was his deputy and she also had a cult of personality around her and in many ways, it was even weirder and more ridiculous. So she was built up as the mother of the nation, the mother of Romania. And she was also supposed to be an absolutely amazing research scientist. So, so she was always posing with you know, university professors and you know, photo ops of her in a lab in a white coat, looking like she's doing research. Do we know if she actually was a research scientist or was the whole
1: thing a construction?
0: Yes, we do. We we do know the answer to that question. But first, I'm going to give you a little question. So, Gareth, a little science quiz for you. What's the chemical formula for carbon dioxide? That would be CO2. Yes, now you see, you've just displayed a better understanding of chemistry than Elena Ceausescu had. (laughs) (laughs) Because she she got a nickname a derogatory nickname which obviously no one would have used to her face because they'd probably be shot but she used to pronounce co2 as co2 or Kodoi in romanian um again again i hope i hope i'm pronouncing that right and it, and it and it's and it's just something that as a scientist you would never do it'd be it'd be like saying watson and crick uh, worked out the structure of dinar So the Ceaușescu's, they lived in absolute luxury, so they had loads of palaces, country residences, but none were more grander than the House of the Republic. So construction started in 1984, which is a good year for a uh, totalitarian, (laughs) uh, (laughs) megalomaniacal government to do anything. Started 1984 it went on to become three times the size of the Palace of Versailles. Ooh. So, you you, you know, we're talking absolutely enormous. And and it was eventually completed, and it, you know, became the largest palace in the world with uh, 1,100 rooms. And one of the things that was really sad about it was, you know, just one of the things that was really sad about it was that a fifth of Bucharest had to be demolished to make way for it. And, you know, these are... These are old neighborhoods, neighborhoods that had been around for centuries, just, just bulldozed, just cleared out of the way just to build this enormous palace. A dictator who lives in amazing opulence while his people starve. So, back in Romania, life must have been pretty terrible for the average Romanian. So, because of all these extravagant building uh, programs, Romania chalked up a lot of debt. Most of the country's economic output was exported. So that meant there were shortages for just about everything food, fuel, medicine, you name it. In fact, in, in one of his propaganda films, you can see Ceausescu doing this ritual essentially of inspecting the harvest. So, you know, making sure that the people were going to be fed. So he stood there with, you know, massive displays of, you know, um, fruits, vegetables, grains, bread, all of this lovely looking food. And it's all fake. It's, it's all made out of wood and painted, because they were that short on food. Something else that people had to put up with, as well as not having any food or fuel or whatever, was Ceausescu's policy on reproductive rights. So he had this idea of increasing the population of Romania as much as possible. So contraception was banned, and abortion was banned. And not only that, women were subject to monthly pregnancy checks... Really, really intrusive so, so, so you'd go and see a doctor and be internally examined and sex education in Romania wouldn't have been that great so a lot of the women had no idea what was going on and it, would have, it must have been absolutely terrifying so any woman found to have had an abortion was was severely punished and they'd be punished by the force that kept the population in check because at this point in the story you might be thinking well why don't people just rise up and get rid of it? So they were kept in check by Ceaușescu's secret police, who were called the Securitate. Ah, classic secret police. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At its height, the Securitate employed half a million informers, and they had thousands of regular staff as well. So it was one of those situations where you didn't have freedom of expression because... You know, nowadays there's Twitter and Facebook and whatever else. And, and if you say, oh, the, I can't stand what the President of the United States is doing. I can't stand what the Prime Minister of the UK is doing. you say anything like that, no one cares. Back in Romania, if, I don't know, you were, you're just in a street and you shout out, down with Ceausescu, you'd be banged up and maybe even tortured and killed.
1: I mean, I know we, uh, we touched on 1984 earlier, but, you know, there is a, a very sort of thought crime uh, oh, element to this.
0: Definitely, definitely. And they had to try and balance culture as much as they could because there's, um, there there's some footage of a Romanian band whose thing they did at the time was to perform English pop songs. Not, not, not specifically English pop songs, but pop songs that were sung in English and made singing in English. And there's a little clip of them singing Lady Madonna and the Securitate get a hold of what they're doing and they go, whoa, you can't, you know, can't do that. But they've got a following of thousands. So if something happens to them, then everyone's going to know. So the Securitate do a deal with them, they say, right, okay, you can keep performing, you can keep performing to your crowds, but you've got to sing in Romanian, and the only songs you can sing have got to be Romanian folk songs, or songs which are based around Romanian folklore. So what you end up with is an 80s hair metal band playing music inspired by folklore. It sounds like Spinal Tap. (laughs) (laughs) It (laughs) <laughs> it it sounds like Stonehenge, but what's really creepy about the footage is that there are securitate men in in the audience everywhere, and they tell the audience, right, the only appreciation you can show is is clapping. So of course, the band do this, you know, big metal number, and at the end of any show like that, what you'd expect the whole crowd going, you whoop know, and hollering, you know, get all of this. So in this footage, the band stops and everyone just goes. Just a little round of applause. It's just just so bizarre. So bizarre. So, So the Securitate were second only to the German Stasi in terms of how ubiquitous they were. Right, so that's a background. So onto the events of December 1989. So by that time, the revolutions of 1989 that were going on around Romania were in full swing. So Gorbachev had officially renounced the Brezhnev Doctrine, basically told everyone that, you know, you do what you want, we're not going to invade, whatever. So lots of the Warsaw Pact countries went their own way. So communists lost power in Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia, and the Berlin Wall had come down the month before. But Ceausescu himself stated that there would be no such reform in Romania. He just, he just put word of that down. So the Romanian Revolution started, didn't start in the capital, which Bucharest, but in the small town of Timisoara. And again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The government wanted to evict a Hungarian pastor, a guy called Laszlo Tokes, who they accused of inciting hatred. You know, the reality was he, he was a human rights campaigner, essentially. So this was protested against on December the 16th, You know, just a day before The Simpsons first aired. And the protest spread and became generally anti-government. And the army was called in and many people were killed. So this is one of the things about Romania's revolution that's very different to the rest of them, and it's, and, it, and it's how bloody it is. Many, many people died in the Romanian revolution. So to combat these uprisings, Ceausescu ordered a rally to be held on the 21st to say, you know, I'm still here, I'm still in control, I'm still really popular. And he was going to denounce what was happening in Timisoara, you know, reestablish control. And that turned out to be a huge mistake because at first everything seems to be completely normal. The rally is televised, and T- and TV showing is showing pictures of Ceausescu and and Elena Ceausescu, and you know all of his cabinet up there on the balcony, looking very much in control. They show shots of a crowd, which is thousands of people now holding up pro Ceausescu banners, holding up his portrait, that sort of thing. So a few minutes into the speech. A murmur starts to go through the crowd, and that murmur quickly becomes jeers and boos. You know, it, it's really audible, and you can see Ceausescu put his hand up as if he's going, as if he's going, "No, I'm talking, I'm talking." And he looks completely shocked by all the booing, almost as if he's about to turn around to an, to an advisor and say, "Are they saying boo or booers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could see it coming. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Well, if you hadn't done it, I'd have had to.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I've got to get the Simpsons references into these stories. So, at that point, the camera ends up pointing at the sky. So, the camera isn't recording what's going on, but the microphone is. And Ceausescu's trying to get order. You can hear him going, Hello! Hello! Which I assume is Romanian for hello. And Elena is going... Shut up! Shut up! We raised you! How dare you! You know, she's saying, she's saying things like that to the crowd. In in Romanian? In Romanian. Yes, in Romanian. And the crowds start, uh, chanting, Tim Mishwara! Tim Mishwara! And down with Ceausescu. And what's really odd if you listen to, if you listen to the soundtrack from the footage, what they're chanting is to the tune of that Spanish song, Ale. Ole, 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 ole. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's it's so odd.
1: Yeah, almost um, a, a celebratory
0: uprising. Yeah, it was. It was. And they do lots of things which would have had you killed um, before the revolution. And I'm going to throw in a bit of a flag fact here, you know, myself. Ah, before. here we go. First
1: yeah. first flag fact
0: of the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of my other passions is vex- vexillology. So during Ceausescu's time, the flag of Romania was... Essentially what it is now, so a tricolor of blue, yellow and red, but it also had a roundel in the middle, which was the emblem of the Romanian Communist Party. And as a sign of protest, what people did was they cut the emblem out. So you had loads of people with flags, Romanian flags, with a big hole in the middle. Ah. And that became, you know, a symbol of a revolution. The Ceausescu's are eventually whisked inside after it's obvious that they're not going to take control of the situation. And the armies brought in to try and crush a protest and the securitate getting involved and well so people so people are getting shot people are getting beaten that sort of thing so the Ceausescu's stay in Bucharest that night and during the morning of 22nd it's revealed that a guy called Vasily M- M- Milia I think who was Ceausescu's defense minister and he died under suspicious circumstances and this is what this is one of the odd things about history People think that history is fixed because it's stuff in the past. But a lot of history is kind of dynamic because things are worked out after the event and people have got different ideas of what of of what's going on. So what happened to Mylia is is still unclear. So some say that Ceausescu ordered him to fire on the protesters and he he took his own life rather than carrying out that order. Some say he was killed by the securitate. Either way, the army get wind of this, and this causes mass defection. So so in a very short space of time, Ceausescu loses control of the army, and they join the revolution. They join the other side.
1: Okay, so the wind is definitely uh, picking up speed at this stage.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But the important thing to remember is that his security forces, his secret police for, sec- for Securitate, they're very much on his side. But, you know, without the army, then there's no real... Hope for Ceausescu. He turns up at the balcony again and he tries to, you know, reason with people. I think he said, go home and enjoy Christmas. And everyone went, how can we go home and enjoy Christmas? We haven't got any food. You know, it, it, it was a bit like um, Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. It was that sort of moment. So he ends up being uh, whisked away on a helicopter. At that point, the guy who's taken over. From the from the general who died in suspicious circumstances, a general called Stan Selescu, He is trying to get the Ceausescu's onto the helicopter, and, and and he's going, right, come on, let's let's go and get the helicopter. Let's get this helicopter. Oh, oh no, oh no, oh oh I've broken my leg. Oh, you go on without me. You go on without me. I'll only slow you down. Oh no. So, yeah, this, this general, he fakes having a broken leg so that he doesn't get on the helicopter, because he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. So, the Ceausescu's, they leave, and that leaves the country leaderless, essentially. So this organisation called the National Salvation Front is hastily put together. So, so you have a temp- temporary government uh, led by a guy called uh, Ion Ilescu.
1: Ah, yes. Yes, another familiar name.
0: Yep. Yep, absolutely. So the Ceaușescu's helicopter, and no one's really sure what Ceaușescu's plans were at this point, but the helicopter is piloted by someone from the army. It's, it starts bobbing up and down, and Ceaușescu goes to the pilot, whoa, what are you doing, what are you doing? And the pilot says, oh, we're under attack, we're under attack from anti-aircraft fire, I'm, I'm trying to dodge it again yeah, that's, that's a complete lie there's a lot of sort of slapstick going on at this stage. there is there is it's extraordinary Ceausescu then panics and goes no 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 can't have that right land the helicopter land the helicopter they land in the middle of nowhere him and his entourage get out so you've got Nikolai and Elena and a few security men they then flag down a car you know j- just just I've heard a version of the story where Elena Ceausescu pulls out a gun and you know jumps out in front of the car and goes stop, you, you know to get the driver to get, to get the driver to get to get out like it's an episode of Pulp Fiction or something.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a bit of the old Hollywoods about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's a I think there's a little bit of embellishment going on in some places. So the first car they stop is driven by a doctor, and um, the doctor drives for a bit and realizes actually I don't. Really want anything to do with with this? And he goes, "Ah, oh, 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 no. cars breaking down. Cars breaking down. Engine trouble. Engine trouble." I told the you know I told the mechanic about this last week. He didn't think, "Ah, oh, looks like we're not going anywhere." So again, you've got somebody who's you know faking. <laughs> so he's faking car trouble to get out of it. So so they end up stopping uh, another car, and the driver convinces them. That they can go and hide in an agricultural institute in a city called Targa Vista. And he takes from there. And the director of the institute turns up and he lots of Chochescu's in a room. Now, that may sound really odd that Cescu allowed that, he's just following random people. But if you look at footage from after he leaves Bucharest, you can see he's always looking at his watch. Always looking at his watch. And they found out that he had a radio transmitter in his watch. Because they planned ahead. For this, you know, if anything happened to him, then the Securitate could uh, could pick up the signal and go and rescue him. So, but unfortunately for him, this, this rescue never comes. So on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, Ilescu signs a decree that establishes a military tribunal to try the Ceaușescu's. So it's held the next day on Christmas. Uh, the trial is just a kangaroo court, essentially. The trial lasts a couple of hours... Yeah, you know, and it's and it's filmed, and there's a lot of shouting going on. Ceaușescu's are accused of genocide, so t- so everyone's shouting, "Murder!" someone from the back even shouts out, to <laughs> And Nikolai just keeps looking at his watch. So at the end of the trial, the the couple are sentenced to death. They plan to take Nikolai out and shoot him first, followed by Elena. But as a last dying wish, the Ceaușescus requested to die together, and. That's granted. And as if it wasn't shambolic enough before, it gets even more shambolic because they go, right, right, we need to assemble a firing squad. Right, we need some volunteers. And everyone goes, yeah, me, yeah, I'll do it. I'll kill him. So it all happens very, very quickly. Too quickly for the cameraman who wants to, you know, film it for historical purposes. So, so he gets there late, just catches the end of it, and he just films their dead bodies. The dead bodies of the Ceausescu's are broadcast on Romanian TV, and that pretty much that pretty much put, puts an end to the fighting. Because even though the army had switched over, the Securitate hadn't, and they some elements of the Securitate thought that they could still rescue Ceausescu, put an end to the revolution by whatever means they could. But showing that the Ceausescu's were dead, you know, put put an end to all that. And that is the story of the Romanian Revolution. Wow. I do remember uh,
1: seeing some of the news from that uh, at the time. Obviously, I would have been... Well, not obviously. Not everyone is uh, as familiar with me as myself. So I should probably um, fess up to having been born in 1980, which would have meant I was nine when all this was coming out, and it was Christmas. Um, And the main thing I remember about it is thinking that that was a a horrendously... um, Macabre thing to be seeing on news over Christmas. Mm, Definitely. Definitely. Um, which is a little bit selfish of me, really, when you when you consider that an entire country was coming to coming to freedom from a from a tyrant, mm-hmm. and there's me going, "Well, this isn't very sort of holly and ivy, is it?" It's, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Um. Yes. Well, one of the great things about the advent of YouTube is that people put all sorts of weird little clips on. So, in researching this, I. Watched a documentary by Ted Koppel, who, as we all know, is a robot. Um, (laughs) And he said a few things which, again, I think might be a little bit embellished. Because one of the things they said about Ceausescu is how paranoid he was. And certainly he would have been paranoid. There were a series of tunnels dug underneath his massive palace so that he could you know, sneak out through the tunnels if he needed to. Circumstances didn't allow for that to happen. But it was also said that when he went on foreign trips, he'd never eat any of the food that was provided for him. He'd eat afterwards, and he'd only eat food that was cooked by his own private chef, because he was paranoid about getting poisoned. Now, that, now, now, that's believable, but what he, but what Ted Coppel says after that, which I really struggle to believe, it might be true, is that Whenever he went to the loo, he would do his business in a plastic box and he travelled around with a scientist who would then have the box destroyed because he was terrified of people getting hold of his effluence and analysing it and finding out that he, that he had a horrible disease or something like that.
1: Could this be a uh, bad scientific steer he got from his fantastic research scientist <laughs> wife by chance?
0: Oh, it could be. It could be. But, but, but yes, yeah, she, she 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 was honoured with um, honorary doc, honorary doctorates and degrees throughout the world. Um, she also got—I can't remember the university—but she definitely got an honorary degree from somewhere in England. Whether it was rescinded later, I've absolutely no idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely extraordinary people. The Churcherescues absolutely extraordinary, and the extraordinary story. And all the more
1: extraordinary for being 100% true as well, <laughs> except possibly for that going to a toilet uh, in the box thing. Um, yeah,
0: possibly, possibly. Citation needed. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, al- and also, I just need to remind people again, I'm not a proper historian. And that was, well, that was supposed to be a 20-minute version of what happened. I mean, there are even more details to it um, that... that there's more details of who was in the cabinet, what the Securitate did afterwards. So if you're interested in it, just just go out and look it up, I suppose. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So that, I think, is our show. So thank you very much for listening, as usual. And you can get in touch with us. Yep. That's the end of our show. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address is podcast at retrospecticus.org. We are on Twitter underscore retrospecticus and our website is just retrospecticus.org so see you there fantastic goodbye everyone bye